Tonight's topic we're going to be looking at is going to be introduced by a video. I'll have you turn your attention to the screen. And uh, this, this gentleman will, will bring up this issue, I think, in a pretty poignant manner. June 26 of 2000 was uh, uh, a day that my wife and I, Tanya and I, were um, at the top of the highest tip-top mountain there ever was, and at the same time at the bottom of the deepest ocean. When I think back to that night, essentially as far as I could tell, as far as I could feel, God wasn't there. Our uh, twin girls, our first children, Isabel and Faith, were born, which is great. Yay. But, um, Faith uh, only lived 16 hours. Tanya and I watched for the first time in 10 years the video that someone shot of us bringing Faith into the room with Tanya. She was still alive then, barely, and uh, us holding her. It's the first time Tanya had gotten to hold her. Uh, either of us had gotten a hold of her. We had touched her. I asked for the most reasonable thing possible that my daughter would live. How could there be anything more reasonable than that? I tried to imagine if I was God and someone asked for their child to live, an innocent child that's never done anything, how could you say no to that? Either there was no God at all, and everything that happened was purely random. Or if there was a God, he had no power whatsoever. And if so, what difference does it make? Or if there was an all-powerful God, that means he either killed my daughter, or allowed her to die when he had every ability to let her live. There's two kinds of parents in this world. Parents who have held their dying daughter, and parents who haven't. You know, the, the real trouble with Christianity and believing in a God is when a God doesn't do what he's supposed to do. When a God lets your daughter, your innocent, one day old daughter die. How can that be? I would guess that this this issue of the problem of human suffering, the problem of evil, may be one of the most intractable problems that is out there. It's something that every single person wrestles with. Uh, I don't think there's probably one of us who, who haven't had those thoughts, those questions, the, the why, the it doesn't seem like it's, it's right. And oftentimes people assume or they conclude that, well, the Christian God is said to be all-powerful. That means he can do, he's able to do what he wants. But he's also all-loving. 
That means he would want to do the right thing, the good thing. Problem is there's evil, gratuitous, even pointless evil. And so the question is, well, which one isn't he then? Is he not good? Like he could stop it, but he doesn't want to, so he's not good. Or he would like to stop it, but he's just, he's, he can't. He's not able. And so many conclude, well, therefore, the Christian God, who is supposed to be all good and all loving, does not exist. Either some other kind of God exists or no God exists at all. Now, the reality of this, as we think about this, this, this really is two distinct problems. Um, there's, there's the intellectual problem. This is, this is the freshman college student who's sitting in philosophy 101 and looking at a syllogism, looking at an, an argument and looking at the premise and the conclusion and is it valid. And, and it's, it's truly an actual intellectual question. Is the concept of this sort of God, can it, uh, can it cohere with the idea of living in a world where evil happens, suffering happens? But then there's also the emotional problem. And these really, really are different problems. This is the person who is experiencing evil. They're not looking for an argument. They're, they're looking for some sort of solution to the angst in the heart, to the difficulty, to the experience, some, some sort of hope. And so these are two distinct problems. Uh, you know, again, we could take both of these and, and, and spend weeks and weeks. We're going to kind of bounce back and forth a little bit between these two because I think there's, I think there's some crossover. While I say they're different Problems are different questions. I mean, for instance, the, the intellectual, you know, you might think, ah, that's, no, I, I don't really so much care about that. I think it can still really have um, an impact. It can have uh, practical application to the person who's suffering or who will suffer. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if, if you've prepared yourself Meaning, if, if you've sort of done the work to try to understand the world from God's perspective and evil and the human heart and suffering, all these sorts of things. I think when, when we encounter real evil, we're, we're not caught quite so off guard. We've, we've done the work of thinking through some of this. The pain is still there. The pain is still real. The questions still are there. But there's, there's a little bit uh, of a buoyancy there. The, the difficulties don't prove to be. Don't, don't prove to be quite so um, insufferable. So I think there's some application there. So that's, as we kind of bounce back and forth, hopefully, hopefully we'll see that a little bit here. So let's kind of start with the intellectual question. Um, this idea that there can't be a God because that's unjust. Something that I've just seen, that's unjust, and so there can't be a God. Um, there's a, uh, let, me, let me jump forward here. C.S. Lewis who himself was an atheist, and one of the big reasons that, that he gave for his lack of belief was this idea that the world is just, it's so unjust, it's cruel, it's red in tooth and claw, as has been said. And um, after coming to faith, he, he made this statement in his book, Mere Christianity. Now, li listen real carefully to what he's saying here, okay? He used to totally hold this idea, and he said, I realized there was kind of a problem with it. And he said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel, so unjust. But then he asked a question. He said, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, 
find myself in such a violent reaction against it. A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up on my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really, really unjust. Not simply that it didn't happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple, Lewis says. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Did you kind of get what he's saying there? He said, the reason that, that, that I as an atheist, he said, said there can't be a God because this is objectively wrong and unjust. Well, he said, well, how, how did I measure that? And he said, well, I assume there was a moral law. Well, but if there's a moral law, there's a moral law giver. And they, okay, that doesn't work. And so he, he kept kind of finding himself coming back around and realized that he was, he was sneaking in something from the Christian worldview that he rejected in order to prove that the Christian worldview was, was wrong. So it was sort of this circular thing. That's, that's, that's how he wrestled with it. Um, Gabriel Marcel says, there's a difference between a problem and a mystery. He said, a problem becomes a mystery um, when the problem that encroaches upon itself because the questioner becomes the object of the question. <laughs> Meaning when you start to ask the question, all of a sudden you realize you're, now you're being looked at. You're, you've got fingers pointing at you. You have to answer something. Now, that's how Lewis kind of wrestled with the intellectual problem. Um, but the emotional problem was a bit thornier for Lewis. Um, in his book uh, entitled Grief Observed, uh, Lewis was a bachelor for many, many years of his life, and he finally married a woman by the name of Joy Gresham. Later on in life, she, she contracted cancer and went through a great deal of therapy. It went into remission, and, and, and Lewis had finally found this love of his life, this old, old bachelor man. And um, he, in his book, he kind of lets us in on the, on the anger and the confusion of the experience after his loss. He wrote this, Where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting inside the door. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. And then uh, after Joy's, Joy uh, went into remission and uh, that, that ended, she got the cancer back. And he wrote this. He said, time after time, when God seemed most gracious you know, during the remission, he was only preparing for the next torture. And then he ends by saying, I wrote that last night. It was a yell rather than a thought. This is Lewis wrestling with the emotional thorniness of why. Why, these, why this, this evil? Long before Lewis, the Bible raised this question. This is not something that is a modern question in any, in any sense. The Bible has raised this question. Uh, people like Job, the ancient of all stories, uh, to first be written in the Bible, is a, is a book all about the problem of innocent suffering. You've got prophets like Jeremiah. You've got Lamentations. You've got Moses asking this question. The book of Psalms. In fact, 
the book of Psalms has a whole section. They're called lament psalms. Lament is to is to throw your hands up, it's to tear your clothes, it's to say this isn't you know I'm sad, I'm lamenting. And these lament psalms, of of all of them, Psalm 88 is said to be the the saddest song in the Psalter, because most lament psalms, in the end, they kind of end with you know, but. I'm looking forward to God. I'm trusting him. Or there's some sort of an idea of, of hope in some way. Psalm 88 has no hope at the end of it. There's not a shred of hope through this whole psalm. Um, it's written by a man named Heman, the Ezraite. And um, it, 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 it tells us the very last word, in fact, that uh, Heman uses in the psalm is the word darkness. When he ends by saying, darkness is my closest friend. In the Hebrew, the last word is darkness. He, he mentions the word darkness like three times. Let me just read a few verses for you. Psalm 88. He said, Lord, you are the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to me, to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. You've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends. You've made me repulsive to them. I am confined. I can't escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you, but I cry for you for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Um, and he ends by saying that darkness is my closest friend, which is really a, it's a bit of a, uh, a jab, a God meaning you're not. Habakkuk was a Hebrew prophet later on in Israel's history when Israel is in decline, when the Babylonian hordes are coming to take them over to sack the city. And Habakkuk is wrestling with the same problem. God, why? This doesn't seem right. And he writes in Habakkuk 1 verse 2, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen or cry out to you? Violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem and the righteous so that justice is perverted. Clearly, the Bible does not offer any kind of like pie in the sky theology of everything ends, you know, happily like in a TV show after 30 minutes that everything sort of wraps up in some sort of way. Um, but I love that scripture. One thing scripture does teach us, one thing we can take away from this, is scripture teaches us that we, we are to be candid about the real turmoil going on inside us before God. God wants us to come to him in, in, in all honesty, because he knows it anyway, but to bring our true, real, unvarnished, unprotected selves before God and to lay all of that out before him. Um, Derek Kidner, he's a, uh, a commentator, and on this psalm, he, he says this, the very presence of such prayers in scripture is a witness to God's understanding. And I love this last part. He says, he, meaning God, he knows how men speak when they are desperate. 
That's so true. God gets it. It, God's gracious. He's patient. He understands how we're made. He understands that we're but dust, as one author puts it from, from Scripture. Now, like Job, it doesn't mean that Haman's attitude is blameless, but it tells us that not all cries of agony are illegitimate. It's perfectly legitimate to do. So here's what I want to do this evening. I want to just kind of throw a couple questions out there. And again, we're, you know, this is not exhaustive. We're just kind of jumping around to a few things. Um, I want to look at a couple questions and, and see if we can make a little bit of headway because these are oftentimes the kinds of questions that, that come up when we're wrestling through this sort of thing. The first one, why did God allow the possibility of evil? And suffering, which is to say, why did why didn't God, if he's really all powerful, if he's really so intelligent, and so capable, why didn't he just create a world where all of us freely always chose the good and not evil? Well, the key is in that word freely Um, for an action to be free. You have to have two things. You have to have the opportunity to do the good and the ability to choose evil. You have to have opportunity and ability. Opportunity to do the good, but also the ability to choose evil. And that's the risk that, that God took. Um, how many of you guys have seen this little thing here? Mr. Wonderful, have you seen this? This was kind of popular like a couple years ago at Christmas time, I think. Um, Mr. Wonderful is this doll. He's this handsome-looking little doll um, that um, he's, he's got all these phrases. You press his hand. He's got a little heart on his hand. And you press, and he says stuff like, no, honey, you take the remote control. Or, the, you know, hey, let's go shopping today, and you just splurge, you know. Or, no, 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 I want to keep listening to you. Don't stop, you know. <clears throat> all, all, all the sorts of things that, you know, we realistically say. And, the, you know, he's, he's, he's never sulky. He's, he's never ill-willed or anything like that. He's like the perfect hu- husband. He's Mr. Wonderful, and he's got like 16 of these little recorded things, and you just, you just press it, and out comes this, this wonderful a little little statement here. Um, now, what are the drawbacks to this in a relationship? If, if you're going to have a relationship with Mr. Wonderful, what are the drawbacks? Um, he does everything you want. He says exactly what you want him to say. Well, let me read for you the words of atheist Jean-Paul Sartre. He said, the man who wants to be loved does not desire the enslavement of the beloved. He is not bent on becoming the object of passion which flows forth mechanically. He does not want to possess an automaton. And God agrees with, with Sartre. This, this isn't love, right? I mean, you could, you could program it to say things like, I love you. God could have made a world in which we were all programmed to say, God, I've been thinking about you all day long. I just, I love worshiping you. But that's not love, right? Love has to have that opportunity and the ability. This simply isn't love. He would have a world of automatons. And who's to say, if we don't want that, why would God, who is multi-personal, who is beyond personal, why would he want that sort of a response either? See, God paid the human race the greatest compliment that could possibly be paid by building us for himself, but not forcing himself on us. Because he wants, he wants lovers. He doesn't want theologians. He doesn't want philosophers. He doesn't want test takers. He wants lovers. That's what we want in life. 
See, this decision of God is graphically seen in the New Testament by Jesus himself. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, this is at Passover time. This is as he's approaching the cross in just a short period of time. He, he, he walks into Jerusalem, and as, as he's cresting the Mount of Olives, he looks over the Temple Mount, and he sees Jerusalem and all the different Jews from the diaspora who live in different parts of the Greek world, and they've all come there, and it's just filled with them. Thousands, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. In, in Matthew 23... Jesus looks out and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. It's this longing, motherly kind of language that he used. And then Jesus summarizes the people's response in four tragic words. You were not willing, he says. You were not willing. The world that God created is not a world of Mr. and Mrs. Wonderfuls. It's a world of free agents who he he woos as a lover woos. Second question. Okay. I get that. So God can't do that because that doesn't even make sense. You wouldn't have anything good. You wouldn't have evil because no one would be choosing evil, but you'd also have no good. No one expressing courage or love or any of those sorts of things. Well, how about God... Um, why doesn't he just step in? Why doesn't he just stop things, right? Why doesn't he just stop this activity or that activity and that sort of thing? Why doesn't God just set a date? Tell us. This next Monday, um, he's going to start and he will intervene every time something evil is about to happen. Okay, how would he do that? Well, let me just give us a, a possibility. Let's say he, he's got a taser, Okay. Um, this is the X-26 taser here. It looks pretty impressive. Um, this, this taser shoots an individual with a temporary high-voltage currency of electricity. The makers of it claim that a half-second of the taser um, will cause intense pain, muscle contraction. Two to three seconds will cause a person to become dazed, drop to the floor. And anything over three seconds, the makers say, will, will, will cause someone to be incapacitated for up to 15 minutes, and, and the makers boast of a 95% compliance rate, which is to say you can make someone do whatever you want is the idea here. Okay, so Monday comes. Um, you're about to lie. You get a half-second uh, jolt there. Uh, someone's going to rob you, and so they get a two-second, and they're incapacitated. They fall on the ground. Or someone's going to murder someone, and they get, they get four seconds. They're absolutely incapacitated. Um, now, however... You also have to do evil thoughts because, remember, evil actions follow from evil thoughts. Jesus was a very keen, uh, had very keen insight into the psyche of human sin and human psychology. And he talked about, well, there's there's sin in the heart. So every single time that you have an impure thought, every single time you have a, a selfish thought, you get zapped as well. But not only that, when you fail to do what is good, when you fail to be kind, when you fail to assist someone, when you fail to help, when you fail to forgive, you also get a zap. What's the result? Well, we've got a world of twitchy people uh, who obey God, uh, kind of like a cowering beaten dog does. What are the drawbacks of that? Well, you've got a world of people who, who obey outwardly. Their evil actions largely stop, maybe 95% if the gun works. And um, but a person's heart is left unaffected. 
And we all know it's the heart that is really meaningful. In uh, people who write uh, in child psychology, parenting books, that sort of thing, they will talk about a distinction between what's called deep acting and surface acting in children. There's deep acting and then there's surface acting. Surface acting is, is where the child uh, uh, is controlled outwardly by his or her behaviors, um, but, but the feelings go untouched, you know, that, that part, but, but they're obeying outwardly. Uh, deep acting is which seeks to affect the child's heart, the child's attitude, to, to not just act respectful, but to actually respect maybe adults. Might be an example. If, if God simply interfered by shocking people, by stopping people in some way, he would get a world of surface actors. But that's the very thing that Jesus was most harsh against when he was here, is people who outwardly held up a certain you know, moral standard. They looked a certain way. They, they put on a certain um, exterior of moral conformity. And Jesus kept saying, what about your heart? You're like a tomb that's so pretty and nice on the outside, inside it's dead man's bones. And so he talked about springs of living water. That's the exact opposite. So that wouldn't work either. Well, another question that we have to ask in this is, is God immune to our suffering? Is he immune to it? You know the word empathy. Empathy is your ability to project yourself into the perspective of another person to imagine, to, to feel, uh, to try to understand how they see the world and how they see experiences and that sort of thing. Um, many of you will have heard of uh, Father Joseph Damien. Father Joseph Damien is um, a man who in the, in the 19th century, in 1873, he requested from his Catholic Christian order, where he was a priest, he requested to be sent to Molokai, uh, which is an island in Hawaii. And he has to be sent there because there was a leper colony there and they had no doctor. And the thought of these people not being cared for at the end of their life, he just, he said, I can't, I can't handle that sort of thing. And so he has to be sent there. And he was, and he did everything for them. He, he bathed them. He, uh, he dressed their festering ulcers. He built coffins. He, dug graves, he held worship services, and he served there for 12 years. Um, this is a picture of the, uh, of the colony, the leper colony there, these people that he served as their bodies were falling apart. And um, each, each Sunday when he would hold the worship service, he would start by saying, my fellow believers. And he would start the service, and he'd been doing that for years. And then one day he said, my fellow lepers. And at that minute, every single person thought of him differently. He had changed forever. Why? Because he had gone beyond empathy. Empathy is one thing. He went beyond empathy. He went to identity. He actually identified with them fully. And he died there. In fact, to this day, if you go there, there's this place where a part of his body is buried. They, they asked for his whole body to be buried there. The church, which he had become kind of a hero in the church, they said, no, he's a hero. We want him buried here. And they said, well, would you, would you send us his heart? And they said, no, we won't. And he said, send us his right arm. Said, what? Why? And he said, because those are the arms that had embraced us and loved us and touched us in significant ways. Here's the question. Um, 
is God's understanding of our suffering, is it more, is it similar, is it more similar to Joseph, Father Joseph Damien before he got leprosy or after? Well, if this one doctrine, which the church embraces more centrally than anything else, the incarnation of the Son of God, if God in the person of Jesus took on human nature, human flesh, became fully human in every way like us but without sin, if he went beyond empathy, if he actually identified with us, then is God affected by suffering? Is he untouched? No. Not in this. And that's what makes Christianity absolutely different from any other philosophy, any other religion, any other approach to life. And why I think the answer, the story, grappling with things like suffering and evil, makes the most sense. Um, In his short life, Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced pain, abandonment, injustice. He was a political prisoner, beatings. Discouragement. Um, few, when my wife was uh, 16, she, like one of her favorite memories as a kid is she got, she got to go with her dad on, on a work trip to, to New York City. And one of the things that she got to do there as a, as a 16-year-old was she went and saw the, uh, the play Phantom of the Opera like on Broadway. And she just, just like loves it. It's like one of her favorite things. And so she actually has like c- CDs like of the music, you know, and I'd never seen it. And so she would be, you know, she'd play the CD sometimes over here. And I remember, you know, there was this one song, there's this, there's this part where the Phantom is yelling at Christine and Raul, and he's saying, go, go, just go, leave me. He's just screaming, go, go. And I'm listening, you know, and I'm just going, what? This is horrible. This is horrible. This isn't music. This sounds awful. There's all this discord. It doesn't make sense. It's just, it's just noise. It like hurts my ears. It doesn't make any sense. And then I saw the play. We went and saw the play. And all of a sudden, because I knew the story, once I understood the story, I knew why the screaming. See, when you understand the story of the phantom, you, you understand why the screaming. You understand the music of the night. You understand the, the struggle of this deformed face to, to try to woo this woman. You understand all the discord, all the struggle, all the agony. It makes sense. See, I would suggest that when you understand the story of God and his world, you can understand the problem of evil. It makes sense. It's just as painful. It hurts just as bad as it did before. But you have an understanding of why the screaming, why the revolt, why the discord. When humanity turned its back on God in the garden, it all fell apart. It was like it was like unchaining something from whatever was orbiting around. Everything's broken. Everything's discord. Unchaining the human heart. Let me just give you four quick um, what I would call our. Unique Christian doctrines that help us understand the story, that help us deal with something that every single one of us deals with better than anything else. This is the only way that we'll really be able to grasp it and wrestle through it. Number one, the purpose of life is not happiness, but the personal knowledge of God. See, this, this question, until you ask the question, what's the purpose of human life? What's the point? The way you answer that question will completely determine how you see everything else. 
See, many people believe that if there's a God, he must, his purpose must be to create an environment where his little human pets can be happy. I mean, really, that, that, that's kind of our default setting. Problem is, we're not these little human pets in environment. The purpose of human life from a biblical Christian worldview is not our happiness. It is the personal knowledge of God, which ultimately leads to human flourishing and total human fulfillment. Number two, human rebellion, or humankind rather, is in a state of rebellion against God and his purposes. Humanity is made in the image of God with great, deep dignity, worth, value that can never be taken away. A state can't confer it. A state can't take it away. It's built in. It's hardwired. It's baked into who we are. We have human dignity because we're made in the image of God. And yet, we're like an object that's been unplugged from its source of electricity. We're, we're disconnected from God. And because of that, everything is broken. God's judgment on that rebellion was both judgment on the world, the physical world, and judgment on us. And you see immediately them falling out of relationship with each other. Shame enters in. You know how, you know how destructive shame is in an intimate relationship? It's horrible. And immediately there's a breakdown at every single level. Third, God's purpose is not limited to this life, but spills over into your eternal life. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who many of you will know, he was a a famous um, journalist. He was an atheist, did a lot of debates and that sort of thing. And uh, he just passed away of, of cancer, unfortunately. And his uh, he, he was his wife was interviewed by PBS this last year, and you know they asked, how did he do at the end? And oh, he you know she said he never you know wavered or you know gave in to God. He was one of the kind of one of the new atheists who just has this vehemence against God, hatred and. And she said, no, he didn't waver at all. And she said, you know, he used to believe this idea that whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And she said, at the end, he said, boy, what a bunch of baloney. I don't think he used the word baloney, but that's kind of how he said it. He said, that, that's bunk, because this is not making me stronger. This is killing me. And, of course, because he believed life ends right there, were worm food afterwards, there would be no reason. Suffering could have no purpose. But, see, if, if this is just a truncated portion of a larger immortal life that God has called us to, then what, what, what breaks me down, what hurts me, what pulls me back, what limits me, does not have to be something which absolutely destroys me. I don't have to live in absolute despair. And then the fourth and the last one. Personal knowledge of God is an incomparable good. It is absolutely the highest good there is. Now, I would suggest, and again, I realize that you kind of have to probably do a lot more to really buy into this. But I would suggest that it may be only a world like ours where there really is actually a good amount of gratuitous evil and suffering in our world. Only in that kind of world would, would the maximum number... Of people freely come to a personal knowledge of God and relationship with him. And this is not just a hypothesis. That's unfounded. We see this in our world. If you look at any missions handbook and you see where Christianity is growing, where it's flourishing today. It's in countries where where people are experiencing intense human suffering. Places like Ethiopia, the Sudan, China, uh, the Philippines, 
El Salvador, there, there was actually a remarkable correlation between growth rates in evangelical Christianity around, around the world and terrible suffering. Therefore, it's not improbable that the only, only in this kind of world, which involves some gratuitous, pointless, seemingly evil, uh, natural and moral evil, that the maximum number of people would freely come to know God and his salvation. Many, many have suggested, even through other elements of history, other times that uh, suffering is what they call the rock of atheism. <laughs> or, you know, things like um, after Auschwitz, there can be no God. But this is actually far from it. Um, many, many who make that claim were not necessarily in Auschwitz themselves. Uh, the testimony of people who were there is actually different. In his very last book before he died, Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning, Viktor Frankl, who was himself in Auschwitz, wrote a great deal about it afterwards. He said this in his last book. He said, the truth is that among those who actually went through the experience of Auschwitz, the number of those whose religious life was deepened. Um, let's see. The truth is that among those who actually went through the experience of Auschwitz, the number of those whose religious life was deepened in spite, not to say because of the experience, by far exceeds the number of those who gave up on their belief. And then Frankel goes on in this book to say that just as a weak flame is blown out easily by a small breeze, so a weak faith can be extinguished quickly when it encounters evil and suffering. But then he said, but a real faith is like a strong flame. A storm only fans that into an inextinguishable blaze. This is, this is by a guy who was there. And he was a, he was a psychiatrist before he went in. He studied humans. He, he, he wrote extensively afterwards about how suffering and this sort of thing impacted meaning and impacted life. And he said it was a different story. I saw suffering have an impact, he said, that you would have never, never guessed. Now, you may say to yourself, okay, you know, I would, I would like this to be true. It'd be wonderful if it were true. If it, were true. It, it, it sounds quite true, but how can I be sure? How can I be sure that God will, in fact, redeem all the brokenness, all the evil, all the sin in my life. I just, I just can't see how. That's, that's my problem. I, I just can't see how he could possibly re- redeem. If you knew some of the things that happened in my life, I, I can't see how those could possibly be redeemed. Well, think about this. Imagine that you lived 2,000 years ago, and there's this man named Jesus. You're, you're a Jew, and this long-awaited person that you think maybe is the Messiah. You've followed him. You've listened to him. You've been a follower. You've seen the power that he's had to heal, to do miracles. You've heard this unsurpassed wisdom that he's had in his speech. The quality of his character is unmatched in any way. You're thrilled at the idea of this guy potentially leading your nation. More and more people are flocking to hear him. There's no one like this guy that you've ever experienced. And you imagine that, that he will bring about the golden age, what you'd always hope for, what you long for, what the prophets have talked about. But then, there he is on the cross with a few of his disciples who have the stomach to watch. And you hear people say things like this, I've had it with this God. How could he abandon 
the best man I've ever experienced in my life. He was innocent. He didn't deserve any of this completely innocent. How could God allow that? I don't see how God could bring anything good out of this. No way. Everything's been ruined. Everything's been dashed. Everything is absolutely broken. What would you say? You might agree with them. If you were standing on that side of the cross, I would suggest that you and I would both agree with them. But the reality is, you were standing and looking at the greatest, the most brilliant thing God has ever done. The most beautiful thing that God has ever done in all of human history on the cross. Both justice and love are being satisfied. Evil and sin and death are being defeated. You're looking at an absolute beauty. But you couldn't see it, could you? They couldn't see it. They knew him better than we know him. They knew him personally. They couldn't see it. We couldn't see it. So here's my question. If, this is a big if, I realize, if God can take the greatest, most heinous evil that's ever happened, which is the death of the most innocent person. None of us are innocent. You know, bad things happen to me. I'm not totally innocent. Jesus, the most innocent person who's ever lived, and if he was God, it was the greatest evil because it was deicide, the death of God. If he took the, the worst, most heinous act that's ever been done, and out of that brought the most beautiful thing that's ever been done, if he did that, is it possible, is it just possible that he could take the smaller evils in your life, the little sufferings, the hurts, the broke, is it possible he could take those and redeem them? It's at least possible. Another Hebrew prophet, many years later, who was asking God the exact same question, his name is Habakkuk. And he, he said, why? What's going on? The Babylonians are coming. They're going to take us away. God said this to him in Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all arrogance and evil doing will be like chaff. And that day is coming, and it will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The sun of righteousness will rise with, with healing in the, in the rays of it. He's saying a new day is coming, a new day is coming, and it will make you new. It will bring a newness to you that you, you don't know how it will happen. You, don't, you won't be able to figure out, but it, it spoke of this. Um, when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering, I would suggest that we don't need to try to get God off the hook because God put himself on the hook. The cross. Um, Jesus said the solution to human pain, to human suffering, to that sun coming with healing in its rays and its wings, is his substitutionary death, atonement, and resurrection for us 